Welcome to the Distrust and Disparities Podcast, Voices from the Margins of Healthcare. On this podcast, we will explore both current and historical cases of medical injustices within the American healthcare system. We will get into how we can overcome this systemic mistreatment, advocate for ourselves, and close the gap on poor health outcomes and disparities. I'm your host, Jasmine Moore, a registered nurse, and I am joined by my co-host and good friend, Camille White. Do you think the doctors were evil men? Yes, sir. I know they were. What makes you say that? Because, you see, I lived through it, and there, there are people who read about it. But those are people who read about it, they read about it. Those, that lived, those of us who went through it, we know about it. In episode 10, we discuss the notorious Tuskegee syphilis study, a horrendous example of medical exploitation inflicted upon African-Americans. And we highlight the United Negro College Fund that works to help underrepresented students become highly qualified college graduates. Happy Black History Month, Camille. Yes. Happy Black History Month. We are now in February of 2022, which feels crazy to say, but yes, January was a long month, but we are here. Yes. I wanted to point out, make sure you follow us on social media if you aren't already. For the month of February, we want to highlight various African-Americans that have contributed to the medical field. And also we'll be sharing events that other organizations have going on for Black History Month. So just make sure you're checking our socials so you can see what we have going on. That's, you know, Facebook and Instagram. That's at Distrust and Disparities. And then we're also on Twitter at Distrust Pod. So make sure to check us out and stay up to date and, you know, follow us and, you know, leave comments, retweet, like our posts. That support. We love to see it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Spread the word. So let's jump into this week's episode. We are going to discuss the Tuskegee syphilis study. So for Black History Month, we wanted to look at a historical case, and Tuskegee is one of the most widely known and Mm -hmm. notoriously known cases of medical exploitation in U.S. history. It's the longest non-therapeutic experiment on human beings in the history of medicine and public health. This is something that is just so horrendous and ugly that went on for decades. From 1932 to 1972, this, that's 40 years the study went on. Mm-hmm. Like how? And so this is going to be a two-parter. So just to give you guys a heads up, because this case is very complex and, you know, we want to make sure that we cover everything and different things. We just want to talk about the impact and the legacy. And, you know, you've probably discuss this case has been brought up, especially now in the time of COVID, when the vaccine was coming up, people were discussing Tuskegee and Black people not feeling comfortable getting the vaccine. It's going to be a two-part episode. So we wanted to give you details that you may have thought you knew or details that are new to you. Just we wanted to really cover this story and take a deep dive into this. And I know I found it interesting if you just do like a basic Google search of the Tuskegee um, syphilis study. So the first website that came up for me was the CDC's website. And they summed up 
this 40-year study in like a paragraph. Like one, one, it was like a paragraph. And then the other one, it might have been like three, four paragraphs. But the study took place, like we said, over 40 years. And it was just that's, the way they described it. It was just like, are you serious? <laughs> that was like so you know, ridiculous. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. And the fact, too, that that you would summarize up something that took 40 years and is just an ugly part of American history into one paragraph is very much like, again, the problem that is in yeah American history, mm-hmm. but the government and white people, especially being in control of how our history is being told and how mm-hmm. it's being communicated to others, and how it's sugarcoated and downplayed, mm-hmm. and the the role and ugliness and the evil that people inflicted upon us is sort of like oh, isn't that bad? You know, if it if it's just one little simple paragraph about right. literally the longest experiment on human beings in the history of medicine and public health can you put that into one paragraph okay one paragraph i was like are you serious it was they had like the timeline it was like they started the study it wasn't to treat black people then they ended the study president clinton apologized bam right here's a link to the apology here's a link to some archival information here's a link to some pictures There you go. So a lot of our research for this episode, we went to Tuskegee University's, their National Center for Bioethics in Research and Healthcare, and also Harriet A. Washington's book, Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from the Colonial Times to Present. So that book is a really good read just to learn about the dark history of medical exploitation and experience in American history. And she points out Tuskegee is, you know, notoriously known, but this is not the only case of medical injustice. And quite frankly, she points out this is not the worst, even though it lasted 40 years. There are others that are not talked about that are also covered up, but they point to the Tuskegee because it's the most widely known. And also a good quote from the book that I wanted to point out She points to the history of medicine has been written by professionals, so it reflects their point of view. This experimental abuse is often downplayed or misrepresented as therapy in medical and popular culture. That's really important in discussing things like this and historical events like this because you have to really look into who is telling the story. Who Mm -hmm. are the eyewitnesses, per se, that are giving you these facts because you have to question their motives and are you really getting the true history? And I think more and more we're becoming aware that what we learned in school Mm -hmm. is not covering even the most basic of things. I even think of it like an iceberg where you get this tiny little bit up top and there's all of this stuff underneath Mm -hmm. that's been covered up and changed to it's to make people who inflicted such like ugly things on black people on indigenous people and people of color it's to make their ancestors feel better and maybe not even feel guilt or anything about no this is this is what your ancestors did this is what your grandpappy mm-hmm. and grand grandma did you need to understand mm-hmm. that and acknowledge that if you actually do want to move forward and do the work and be better people and actually make sure that we're 
building into a country that cares truly about everyone. You don't just say you care, you actually show you care. And you have to acknowledge the true history, not the history that makes you and your ancestors feel comfortable about yourselves. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's why I think this podcast is important and other books and other podcasts that are discussing cases of medical injustices and just different stories of people are important because a lot of times, even in the media, they'll cover these stories and they'll get like a lot of attention and then it'll just fade away until Mm -hmm. the next horrible, unspeakable event comes about. But we need to talk about these events. We need to talk about the aftermath, the legacy, and, you know, what is being done exactly? Because mm-hmm. a lot of, uh, what is it, symbolic oh, yes, apologies, performative, performative actions yes. are being done, but nothing really is being done to change the systemic root of the problem. Mm-hmm. So... That's why we need to keep talking about it. You need to share these episodes. You know, you need to read and learn what's going on. Yep. We want to give you some background information on the study. So the U.S. Public Health Service, also known as PHS, began the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. And it's also commonly referred to as the Tuskegee Syphilis Study in 1932 in Macon County, Alabama. And so we want to give some background information on not only the study details, but also syphilis, the disease as well. If we look into why they even chose Macon County, Alabama, in 1932, Macon County was composed of 82% Black people, and more than half of those residents lived below the poverty line. And this, you know, was 70 years after slavery ended and most of the residents were, and this is a quote from the book, chained by debt and forced to work the same land as their enslaved grandparents. And so basically, you know, most of these people were sharecroppers and they were in this never ending cycle of working for white land owners and, you know, still picking cotton. Right. and, And they were being paid very low prices for their crops. But of course, on the other side of that, they were charged really high prices for food, for seeds and other like vital necessities that they would need to just exist on this land. Yeah, it was basically reinvention of slavery or slavery under a different name. Like you were being paid, but barely enough to survive and take care of your family. And then Mm -hmm. you would become in debt to the white landowners because you didn't own the land that you were, you know, working on. They basically had control over you. So if you didn't pay or you didn't work the land, they could beat you. They could jail you. Mm -hmm. They could lynch you, Mm -hmm. do other things to force you to continue to work. And this is majority of the population in Macon County. I believe just doing the research, it's basically everybody except the students of Tuskegee University and the people that work at Tuskegee University. You know, most of this county was sharecroppers in a large majority of the South at mm-hmm. this time. And then additionally, too, why Macon County was a place that these researchers chose to do this so-called study was because medical care was just non-existent. And out of the 16 doctors that there were, there was only one that was a black doctor. 
So you have 16 doctors there, 15 are white and one is black. And of course, then you have, you know, majority of people who live there are black. This doctor is overworked, completely Mm -hmm. overworked, trying to serve this large community of black people. Oh, and I was going to say the white doctors, they probably weren't seeing, you know, black Mm -mm. people. You know, we're talking about segregation now. It was Mm -hmm. they definitely probably weren't seeing black people. So you, you had to go to the black doctor. There was also the John A. Andrews Veterans Hospital. And now that did see a small fraction of the Black population. But like you were saying, in terms of other Black people in this county who weren't sharecroppers, they were mainly treating the staff and students of Tuskegee Institute, also known as now Tuskegee University. So... The sharecroppers, the people who were living below the poverty line, they weren't the ones being seen at this veterans hospital. It was other members of the community that worked for Tuskegee. Yeah, honestly, they couldn't afford to see a doctor Mm -hmm. or go to a hospital. They just did not have the money or the resources. And a detail, they said the black doctor, he would exchange like services maybe for like food or um, Mm -hmm. maybe crops in order Mm -hmm. to like see patients in need. But you had to be in like extreme emergency case to see a doctor at that time in that county. Mm. Additionally, Booker T. Washington, who was, you know, the founder of Tuskegee Institute, he set out to create a public health program to address the poor health of the county. And that was around 1920. So we're still what now, 12 years out from that and people are still suffering and they still don't have the help that they need. Right. And Tuskegee, that's a major institute in the county, and they are trying to create initiatives that can get the royal sharecroppers access to the health care that they need. Mm-hmm. So they were trying to create a public health program mm-hmm. um, to address their needs in the county. We're also going to give you a little bit of like background information on syphilis. So syphilis is a contagious bacterial disease, venereal disease that is contracted sexually or congenitally through birth. So in 1929, a syphilis survey of Black Alabama residents found a high rate of 36% of the Black residents had syphilis. And if you're familiar with syphilis, hopefully you're not, but... (laughs) Yes, hopefully you are not. I'm going to give you a little background information about syphilis because it's important for the study and the type of participants that they chose for the study. So with syphilis, there's three stages of the disease. And the initial stage of sexually contracted syphilis, it starts off with a hard, painless sore that appears on the genitals or the point of entry, also followed by flu-like symptoms. If it's left untreated, it goes into a long latent secondary stage. So this stage can last for decades, like up to 30 years. So this stage consists of various skin growth, sores, bone decay, and heart damage. And if you still don't get any treatment, the final, the third stage, which can occur decades later, it can cause a profound neurologic damage, including blindness, insanity, paralysis, and ultimately death. I wanted to point out 61% of Macon County residents 
they contracted syphilis through birth, not through sexual activity. Mm. So it's one of those situations where, unfortunately, they're passing it down through their children and Mm -hmm. there's been no treatment for them. So it continues to be that way. And that's that's so unfortunate because any parent, you know, if you knew you had something and that there was a way to stop it from going to your child, you would do everything in your power that you could to prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. And we'll mention it again, but at this time there was no cure or there was no adequate effective treatment for syphilis at this time. So that's why so many people ended up contracting it through birth. Other counties in Georgia, they had higher rates of the disease, but they chose Tuskegee specifically because it was a prime location because it had the Tuskegee Institute and the Veterans Hospital in that county. The U.S. Public Health Services, PHS, Their mission, I'm going to read their mission so you know what their mission is and you can, as we go through this episode, you can think back on what their mission is and just compare it to what they are doing and see if they're upholding this mission. So they had the responsibility to monitor, identify trends in, in the health of the citizens and develop interventions to treat disease ailments, and negative trends adversely impacting the health and wellness of Americans. PHS, they conducted various scientific research studies involving human beings. And also it's important to note, in the 1930s, there were some established medical standards. They weren't as comprehensive as they are today, but there were rules and practices that governed researchers at the time. So the doctors that work for PHS, they held very strong and ingrained beliefs in personal biases about Black people. They had a lack of faith that African Americans could manage their own health. They thought that Black people of Alabama, they thought them to be intellectually inferior, resistant to health measures, degenerate, And above all, they believed that they were unable to control their sexual desires. Mm. And like I said, 61% of the residents in Macon County, they contracted syphilis congenitally, not through sexual infection. But there was this belief back then that Black people could not control their sexual desires. White people were obsessed with Black genitalia. Just black bodies. Yeah. This is all part of that same mindset and ideology that's just, it's so harmful and it's so racist and it's so untrue because they knew Mm -hmm. that these syphilis infections didn't occur. Most of them didn't occur because of sexual activity. Yes. They took detailed histories and figured out the source of the infections, but they believe that black people were sexually irresponsible and doomed to chronic infection rates. They kept perpetrating this stereotype, you know, that black people, they're just sexually loose and, like Mm -hmm. I said, irresponsible. They theorized that black men were more likely than white men to spread venereal diseases. And one of the reasons that they initiated the study is because they thought that venereal diseases, the progression was different in white and black people. 
but they held all these personal biases and they brought this into this research study. Many physicians and scientists had a very racist idea and theory that white Americans had more developed brains than black Americans. And so in terms of syphilis, they believed that white people with their, you know, more developed brains would suffer more neurological symptoms as the disease progressed, while then black people, apparently not having as developed brains, would be ruled by more basic organ functions. And then, you know, black people would suffer more cardiovascular complications from syphilis. And so these doctors through this study were allowed to try and validate these racist beliefs that Mm -hmm. the disease had a different progression in white people than it did in black people. And then in 1932, PHS officially began the syphilis study in Tuskegee to study the progression of syphilis in, in black men and not to treat them, just to see how would this disease basically ravage their bodies. And what was really interesting in looking up stuff about it was that there was another syphilis study done on only white people that was conducted in Oslo, and it was called the Oslo Study of Untreated Syphilis. And when that publication came out, it Uh strongly advocated for treating syphilis. At the time, they were using mercury Mm -hmm. to treat patients who had syphilis, which of course it was like, no, this is poisonous. This is, this is not helping people. But they literally in that publication, they warned against not treating the disease. There was nothing around really. They didn't know a true treatment Mm -hmm. that could help people. It was, well, don't just let it go unchecked. Yeah. And I wanted to point out, I hadn't heard of this Oslo study of untreated syphilis before that was conducted on white people only. And like you were saying, the study strongly advocated for treating syphilis, Mm -hmm. finding a cure for syphilis. Mm -hmm. But the doctors, they were like, oh, we want to do another experiment, study on black people and see what happens. Like you already did a study and the results were we need to find a cure or a valid treatment for the disease. But you designed a study just to watch the progression because Mm -hmm. of these racist theories that you had Mm -hmm. and you wanted to see if the effects were worse on black people. Like you said, they were treating it with mercury. Mercury should not be in the body. (laughs) So they're realizing that you should not treat syphilis with mercury. It causes, you know, harmful side effects as well. And I think Mm -hmm. in 1932, the treatment that they were giving people were doses of some arsenic compounds, which still really harsh, but those they found to help with the treatment of syphilis. But they, the doctors who undertook this new study on Black people, they knew this, but they didn't give Black people this treatment just to see if it worked or if this would help. Mm-mm. They would like they literally withheld all treatment, even if like, you Mm -hmm. know, now we know today that those were all terrible treatments, but they still withheld them at that time. It was like, well, that's what we know of what could possibly work. And they still withheld it, knowing full and well that like you just want to see how terrible and ugly this disease can get for black people. You Mm -hmm. want to see us suffer. 
Exactly. And they even withheld the full name of the study. The men in the study, they thought they were being treated for bad blood. Bad blood was a description for a variety of illnesses at that time, anywhere from anemia to fatigue, aches and pains, to gonorrhea, to syphilis. Bad blood was just used to describe a lot of things. That's the men in the study that they thought they were receiving medical treatment for that. They didn't know the full name of the study was called the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in the Negro Male. Yeah. They didn't even know that they were a part of a study. Right. Mm -hmm. Because... A total of 600 black men were enrolled in the study. Like I said, researchers, you know, their whole theory that white people would have worse neurological complications because, you know, they have more developed brains, apparently. There were no there were no white participants at all. So how are you even going to test out that theory? You can't have this ridiculous um, hypothesis and then not test it out. So that's just you coming up with some racist justification. But then with the 600 black men that were enrolled, most of them were poor and illiterate sharecroppers from Macon County. And they had never even visited a doctor before or even received like traditional Western medical care. So they were lured in not understanding that. Well, they didn't know and they weren't told that it was a study, but they were lured in with the hope that these doctors were coming into their area to help them. Mm -hmm. And 399 of the men were diagnosed at like the onset of the study with syphilis. And they were classified as part of the experimental group of the study. And then the 201 men, they weren't diagnosed with syphilis. And then they were put into the control group. And it was literally Mm -hmm. just to see what happens to black people when syphilis goes untreated. Right. And they intentionally chose men who were sicker. Their syphilis was in the latent stage because they wanted to see how the disease progressed. In order to identify those in the latent stage, you know, they were looking for people with obvious lesions, but they also performed painful spinal taps to determine the extent of the disease and progression on the neurological system. In addition, they did blood tests and also x-rays and took extensive histories because they were intentionally looking for men who were sicker and the syphilis was in an advanced stage or going to progress to an advanced stage. Mm. Because ultimately, they wanted to be able to perform autopsies on the men. That was Mm. the ultimate goal. And also, when the men from the control group, when they contracted syphilis, They were moved to the experimental group. And this blatantly goes against all research rules to move people from a control study into the experimental group. That's going to skew all your results. But they weren't looking to follow rules or this is a non-therapeutic study. You're going against all rules of research. It's just an experiment at this point. Yeah. You don't care about their lives. You're literally just waiting for them to die. So then you can cut them up and and then soak and then look at that as like, oh, no, we're researching what happened, what caused the death and really what went on when 
you know what went on. You saw it firsthand. You picked people that you saw were suffering and you were just like, okay, let's let's get you to that last leg of your life so then we can take ownership of your body. So now we want to talk about, you know, what were the incentives? Why did the 600 black men even want to participate in this study? Well, first of all, they didn't know it was a study. They, they thought didn't. they were being treated. They yeah. thought it was treatment. They, they didn't know yeah. this was a study. They didn't at all. They thought that they were getting medical care and treatment for themselves and even for their family members. That Yeah, that's the one thing. And then they were lured in under that false pretense. But then they were also offered things that they would not normally have access to because they were poor and because they were black, like free medical care and burial insurance. And I remember seeing, too, in research that this was especially enticing for Black Americans because this was not too long after the Great Depression. And Mm -hmm. Black people in America really struggled with that after the Great Depression, really suffered. And apparently the unemployment rate in the South for Black people was at 50 percent at this time. So So they were the hardest hit. Yeah. And affect it. Mm-hmm. You're, you're out of work and you have the government coming in as like a white savior going, we're going to give you free medical care. You know, you sign up and we'll give you free medical care and we'll take care of you and we'll give you burial insurance, which I find really interesting of like, what? Uh, why is that included? You give me free medical care, but then you throw it in if I participate that you'll... You'll cover my my funeral costs. Why do you think I'm going to die soon? Is it, what I I then look at that and question that being a part of it. And mm-hmm. these men, like they needed benefits not just for themselves, but they needed it for their families. So that's that's what enticed them. That's what got them to go and participate. Yeah, and with the burial stipends, at the time, most Black people, they couldn't afford proper graves or burial sites. So having somebody be able to cover that expense so you can have like a marked grave versus being in an unmarked grave, that was one reason they did it. But still, Black people at the time, they had the fear of white people autopsying their bodies or in the 1900s. Medical researchers were digging up Black people's bodies and taking them to use them for medical research, for medical students to experiment on them. In addition, some of the things that they did receive, they received free rides to and from the clinics for when they were getting their treatments. They also received aspirin. Aspirin was big during that time, and many consider aspirin a miracle drug. Because imagine working out in the field all day, you're having aches and pains, and you take aspirin, and it really helped just to provide some relief from those pains. So that was one of the drugs that they gave to the men. And then I also know that on examination days when they went as participants, they got meals, they got fed, which mm, that's yeah. a huge deal if if you're mm-hmm. poor, where yeah. you're, you're desperate for a meal you don't know where your next meal is coming from being able to show up and you you're thinking oh i'm getting this free medical care and i'm getting fed you sort of think Mm -hmm. like oh like what made me so lucky how did i end up here and what they're thinking is a great place where people care about you and and care about your health Mm -hmm. and that's why so many people kept showing up for these so-called treatments Mm -hmm. because of 
receiving medications. They couldn't afford the aspirin on their own. And also, like you said, getting a, a meal as well. And another reason the men kept coming back, they also enlisted a black doctor at Tuskegee Medical Center, Dr. Eugene Dibbs. So they appointed him a role to PHS. So they really wanted to gain the trust of the black men. They also hired a black nurse, Eunice Rivers. So she was hired on as a scientific assistant. And her role was to pick the men up, to drive them to appointments. She also gave them the medications and assisted on procedures and examinations. And many of the men, they viewed her as a friend. We'll discuss later her involvement in everything during this whole study because she was there for 25 years of the study with Mm -hmm. the men. So I wonder how much she knew in her role. In her case, it was probably she just did what the doctors told her. It was a good job. She was being paid, you know, bringing Mm -hmm. the men to get treatments and everything. We'll go into details later. But her ultimate goal was to keep track of the men to ensure that they came to their appointments and also that they knew where they live. Because like we said, the ultimate goal was to be able to autopsy them when they died. So they need to know where the men were. As early as one year into the study, they were like, we're basically waiting for the men to die so that we can autopsy them and to see what is going on in their body. One officer, he was a senior officer, he wrote that we have no further interest in these patients until they die. So if you were had any doubts about the intents of the study and the men's intention, this the way they talked and described what was going on just tells you. Yeah, exactly. You wouldn't go from it from the way of, oh, we know for sure that these living human beings have this terrible disease that will ultimately kill them and cause them to suffer while they have it and while they're still alive. And now we'll just basically put a little name tag tracker on them and go, okay, we'll check back in. You know, we'll, we'll actually really, mm-hmm. really care and pay attention when they're finally dead. You wouldn't go about it this way in this horrendous racist way. Right. And they went through a lot of measures to make sure the men didn't get any treatment over 40 years. In the 1930s, before there was actual cure for syphilis, they met with local Black doctors and they asked them to not treat any of the men that were in the research study. Additionally, a list of participants were given to the military physicians so that they wouldn't treat the men on that list. They also went as far as having the participants exempted from being drafted into World War II so that they wouldn't be treated for syphilis in the military, Uh preventing them from getting treatment for syphilis and also just the complications that start to occur with syphilis. So they went through extreme measures to make sure that they could get these bodies. That's all they wanted to ensure that they had bodies. Mm -hmm. They went through so much to make sure no one would help them. You Mm -hmm. literally, and I'm wondering, what did you say to those local black doctors? 
where you probably convinced them like, oh, no, they're in this research study and we're already giving them treatments or we're already doing this with them. So we don't want your treatments to conflict. So just Mm -hmm. make sure you don't do anything. I'm sure that's probably some way that they convince these doctors not to help these men. Yeah, and they probably thought, oh, they're going to the hospital. They're probably getting the best care mm-hmm. out there that's being offered. So they're telling them, hey, follow up with the research doctors. Go see them. They'll be able to give you your treatment. In 1943, penicillin was proved to be a safe and effective cure for syphilis. 1943. Make note of that. And we said the study ended in 1972. Yep. So, 1943, penicillin is up. So, they set up national programs, including PHS. They set up clinics to eradicate syphilis. It's like, we have this magic drug. It works to treat syphilis. So, if you have syphilis, we want you to come and get treated so that it can, before it progresses to that secondary, third stage, come and get this treatment. But penicillin, it wasn't offered to the experimental group or the control group. So the doctors at PHS, they went as so far as they gave the clinics a list of participants' names to the clinics that were providing treatment for syphilis. And some men, I read that they were physically removed from treatment centers. So the men are going to these clinics to get treatment and they... Mm. are not able to get it there blocked. Even though it was extremely hard to try to get treatment at these clinics, about 30 men in the study group were able to get treated. And that's about 7.5% of the infected group. So the PHS doctors, they were extremely worried that effective treatment would interfere with their study data. All they cared about was getting their data, having bodies to autopsy. Yeah, this was not about helping anybody but themselves. Right. Why Why is the study still going on? You know what the cure is. You could have switched to be like, hey, we studied these men for X amount of years. Now we have the cure. So mm-hmm. we're going to summarize our data. You can do a whole new study looking at we studied these men. They had syphilis. We're giving them penicillin. Let's see what it does to treat it in whatever stage of syphilis yeah. that they're in. You but they did not. Instead, right. it was just like, no, we still want to see these these black men die. So we're going to do everything mm-hmm. we can to stop them from getting treatment and literally be worried about like, well, what about our data? What about our you know valuable data, which is just y'all are all trash. Just trash. Right. They're going to conferences and medical committees talking about the disease progression in Blacks, publishing this data, and also talking about the study details at these medical conferences. And it's important to note the public does not have access to this information that they're sharing. It's all with inside this medical community, these medical associations, And even Black doctors, they weren't allowed to participate back then in the American Medical Association. And reading some of like the quotes and things that they wrote about, it's almost like they're bragging about what they're doing and the horrible progression of the disease. In 1936, 
84% of the participants showed signs of illness. That's around when the study first started. A decade later, in 1946, the death rate of the infected men was twice as high as the control group. So they know that syphilis is killing them or the complications of syphilis Mm -hmm. is killing people. And this is at 1946. And like we said, in 1943, that's when penicillin was an effective treatment for syphilis. And by 1955, one third of the autopsy men had died directly of syphilis And most of the survivors were enduring some of the most horrendous complications of syphilis. So including blindness, also insanity, and also the neurological defects. Additionally, about 40 wives were infected and at least 19 children were born with syphilis birth defects. Because, yeah, that's also the part of it, too, where this isn't just a disease that is going to stay with these men and not affect members of their community, their family members, people who they come into contact with. It's affecting Mm -hmm. their spouses. It's affecting their children. And it just shows how insidious it is that these so-called doctors and these researchers would allow this to continue on when they're right. There's, there's a cure. There's a cure and it can be stopped and it can be eradicated. These wives shouldn't have ever been infected. These children should have never been born with syphilis defects. Right. It's such a contradiction. PHS, they're setting up clinics to essentially eradicate Mm -hmm. syphilis. But then you still have this study that is going on to track how syphilis ravages the body. Like, you know, there's a cure. You you even know the harmful effects. You know what's going to happen if you let syphilis go untreated. Yeah. And you've had and, plenty of time. Like by mm-hmm. 1943, you didn't had plenty of time to document all that has happened. So just like you said, cut it there, call it 1943, give them that penicillin and move on. Because you've had plenty of time if you so-called wanted to see what would happen. You saw what would happen. People were dying and people continue to die. What what else you going to add to your little stupid study and in your publication about what's happening? There's, right. there, there's nothing new to add. They died and more died and then more died. There's nothing new. Right. In 1958, which I thought this part is crazy, PHS, they awarded a Certificate of Appreciation which was signed by the attorney general. So he awarded each of the infected participants with this certificate of appreciation and also $25. It was a dollar for each year in the study. So this is 1958. The cure has been out and you are awarding these men a certificate and $25, which was probably a lot back then, but... Their cure for syphilis, penicillin. That's what they should have been given. Yes. Ten years ago. Yes. Not a certificate and money. A, a certificate and money of like, oh, look at you. You've lasted 25 years. What a miracle. Here's $25. It's so infuriating. And like, what the hell? What the hell? Like, this is right. like they're laughing in their faces. 
Like you all don't know any better. You have no idea what's going on. And we're going to do this dog and pony show of like, here's a certificate. Ah, this is so disgusting. Disgusting. And we'll get into more details, but the doctors, they frequently defended their failure to offer the effective treatment by insisting that Black people that had syphilis, they would never voluntarily seek treatment. They were saying, oh, they, they don't want it. There's treatment. But even then, they still don't want it. That was their reasoning. Mm, that literally contradicts when they physically removed men who went to clinics right. to get penicillin. Mm. Y'all just yeah, making saying, shit up. Right. They One, by, one doctor was quoted said, These men, they still regard hospitals and medicine with suspicion and prefer an occasional dose of time-honored herbs and tonics to modern medicine. The men enrolled in the study because they thought they were going to be receiving treatment that they could not afford or not have access to. Exactly. So, again, that contradicts you claiming that, oh, these men would never voluntarily seek out treatment. They literally have done that for decades at this point. Right. But that's your reasoning. That's your racist reasoning for why you won't give them what has been the well-known treatment and cure for syphilis. Right. So just to summarize, the study started in 1932. The cure for syphilis penicillin became the standard in about 1943, 1958, they gave them a certificate of appreciation. And several of the men have died, and many of the men are suffering horrible complications. The study still goes on to 1972. 1972. And we're going to pause right here. In our next episode, we're going to get into the how and the why the study ended and the lasting legacy of the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. But now we're going to move on to um, the segment of our show where we highlight an organization working to dismantle systemic racial disparities. So this week, we wanted to highlight the United Negro College Fund, which provides scholarships for HBCU students. They envision a nation where, you know, all Americans have equal access to a college education that can then prepare them for rich intellectual lives, competitive and fulfilling careers, and be engaged citizens that can then serve the country. This organization is definitely needed. HBCUs, they support a number of students that may not financially be able to afford college, a lot of first-generation students, Mm -hmm. and HBCUs, they produce a number of Black doctors, Black nurses. We need more Black medical professions. Yes, we do. In this day and age. I know during COVID, when a lot of students were affected and impacted by COVID, they set up, you know, emergency scholarships and funds to support students so that they can stay enrolled in college and complete their programs. I know I went to Delaware State and HBCU, and a lot of students did receive scholarships through the United Negro College Fund. 
So in this organization, they have been around for a long time and being able to support students. You can donate to UNIF. You can share their mission. Also, you can support your local HBCU. If you graduated from an HBCU, you can donate, give back, support in any way that you can. You can tell other students about HBCUs. High schoolers coming up, let them know. My younger cousin, I let her know my experience going to a HBCU, and she ended up enrolling in one. Just share so that we can pass on this legacy. You can visit the United Negro College Fund's website to learn more information and to donate to the organization. We'll have that listed in our show notes. And if you know an HBCU student, you can direct them to the website so they can apply for scholarships. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to check out episode 11 for part two, where we continue our Tuskegee syphilis study discussion. If you would like to suggest a topic we should discuss, share your own personal story, or shout out an organization or individual, please email us at distrustanddisparities at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Distrust and Disparities and Twitter at Distrust Pod. Thank you.